morning and welcome to West Seattle Christian Church. If you are new with us, welcome. If not, welcome back. And uh, we're just going to jump right in this week where we left off last week, which was with Isaiah chapter 55. And if you are new with us, you might want to go back to last week's sermon on our blog and uh, check that out. Um, and really, this has been a big, long series that we've been in all summer called The Epic Story. And uh, there's a recap in last week that'll catch you up, or you can go all the way back to the beginning and kind of catch up with us if you like. So we're wrestling with this question of, on the, on the last part of the Holy Week, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in the scriptures, the story of Jesus' crucifixion, we've been talking about how God rested on that Saturday and how when Jesus was being crucified, he is quoting from Psalm 22, 23, and 24, Psalms of worship while he is on the cross. And we asked the question last week, how is God able to do that? How is Jesus in the most horrible, agonizing moment of his life, the toughest thing ever, how is he able to worship at that point? And we ended by, by uh, looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 55, uh, verses 8 through 9, which say this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your way, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that when God does something in your life, you're, you're basically like, yeah, I don't get that. I don't, I don't understand that. that. That often happens to me when I think about when I, when I was aware of God doing something in my life. And I'm like, yeah, I don't get that. It's really weird, very strange. It's not the way I would do it. Um, or there's something in your life where you just need it to go away. You, you want something to be gone uh, some type of trial or tribulation or hard thing. And you've seen God move mountains in your own life. You've seen God move mountains in other people's lives. And you've seen him do these amazing things. But this time, God, now that I have this thing in my life, this one thing that seems insurmountable, where are you? Why won't you make it go away? Why aren't you moving it? Because his thoughts aren't your thoughts. When God works in your life, it would be completely normal for you to go, I don't understand that at all. Like, at all. I don't get it. Why are you doing it that way? Why? Because his thoughts aren't your thoughts. God's like, I know. I don't do things the way that you would do them. Why doesn't he do things the way you would do them? Well, number one, he's smart. And I think we forget that. He's smarter than us. He's smarter than me. He's smarter than you. And we don't give God the credit for his brilliance, for being able to create everything, number one, and for everything else you could possibly think of. We nearly always go around thinking that we know best, not just better than anyone else, but that we know best. Even though you know you aren't a rocket scientist, you know you didn't graduate from MIT, you haven't written a book, you aren't an expert that people are seeking after, but you have an opinion and you will share it on Facebook as if you <laughs> know best. What's best for us? We think we know what's best when it comes to us especially. 
God's ways are not our ways because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. He doesn't see things the way we do. He doesn't think about things the way that we do. We think through things through this myopic little lens of our finite, tiny little perspective. So as for that question, how and why can God rest in Jesus' worship when Jesus is being crucified? How can they do that? Well, they know it's Friday, but they know that Sunday is coming. Like, there's a resurrection happening. Now, here's the deal. Whether you're new to this or whether you've, you've been a Christian for a long time or you're just exploring, here's the deal. The, the idea of resurrection is really appealing to us. We love the power of the resurrection. But the problem we have with the resurrection is this. In order to get resurrection, you have to go through the grave. You have to go through the grave. There has to be a death in order for there to be a resurrection. and We do not like that. So what I want to do here for a few minutes is read through some passages that we've looked at before in prior weeks. But I think they'll help illustrate what happens when these people begin to experience the resurrected Christ. So we've talked about the crucifixion, and now we're going to start talking about what, what's happening afterwards. And once they're experiencing Jesus as part of this epic story, what does that mean for you and me when we're going through the hardest times in our lives? So let's read from John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 11, and it says this. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And she wept, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? So let's pause for a second. We're... we're we're able to see this occasion where Mary Magdalene is all messed up. She is an emotional wreck. And God's perspective here is expressed in and through the words of Jesus. Why are you weeping? And we're like, what do you mean why are you weeping? Jesus just died. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Why are you weeping? Think about this for a minute. Let me give you an example. It's kind of like uh, when my son was little and he was learning to walk or when I've been teaching my daughter how to ride her bike recently. When you're trying to teach your kid how to ride a bike, you got one hand on the steering wheel or maybe you're reaching around and holding both. You've got, what I like to do is I put one hand on the steering wheel and one on her back or on her waist, sometimes underneath the seat. If you have a kid, you, you can relate to this and you're trying to get them to learn how to balance and go on their own volition and, and get this thing right so they can ride the bike and feel the breeze in their hair and feel successful and then so you can have some time to yourself while your kids go ride bikes. Just kidding. Well, as you start, you're 100% or 90% or 80%, you are balancing everything. You're doing everything for them. But while you're doing everything for them, you're saying things like, you've got this. You're amazing. You're doing awesome. Do you feel the balance? This is amazing. You're doing great. Look at you go. 
and they're not doing anything <laughs> by themselves. They're not doing anything, but I'm celebrating what they're doing because that's gonna be, there's gonna be this point where I look at my kid and I know that, that she's ready. I know that she's ready. And I'm gonna say, you're ready. And I'm gonna take my hands away. And then your kid has to decide what to do on their own. And kids don't like this first moment at all. Like if you're going along and you got this, you take your hands away just a little, screaming like a banshee. Like where all the neighbors in a three block radius are like, who, what is going on? Who is screaming bloody murder, right? Um, and you're like, shh, <laughs> you know? Um, your kid has to decide what to do. And they're either screaming or sometimes they put on the brakes, they jump off the bike, you know? Why? Why do they do that? Well, because from their perspective, they are not okay, right? Dad, don't let me go. And here's the thing, as dad, I know that my kid is gonna be okay. I know that my kid's gonna be okay. Ultimately, who is right about this? Who really knows what's going to be okay? The dad or the kid? The mom or the kid? Here's the thing. We have to learn in our own walk with God that if God thinks we're okay, then we're okay. If he says you're okay, then you're okay. In other words, when God says, when Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, why are you weeping? You're all right. It's okay. <laughs> you know, then he's saying she's okay because he knows things that we don't know. And he sees things that we can't see. And so from our limited perspective, this doesn't feel good at all. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to fall over. I'm going to crash. While all the time, God's going, you've got this. Just let go. Trust me. I know you can do it. You're going to be great. It's going to feel amazing. Just believe. And if he says you're okay, you're okay. So seeking God's perspective in those moments where we don't feel okay, where everything is falling apart, where you're an emotional wreck, where you're depressed, where you have stress, where you have anxiety, the next time you're in that spot, it's really important for you to learn what God's perspective is. Don't go running off to everybody else trying to figure out what their perspective is. Don't just immediately, I mean, it's okay if you're gonna be like, this sucks, ah, right? But try to get to that place where you're learning what God's perspective is in that moment. We talked about this last week, but I wanna land on it again. In those moments of learning to seek God's perspective, the way we get there is worship because Jesus is our prototype. He's our model. That's the way we came to that, the way that we came to that conclusion was by noticing all these statements that Jesus makes on the cross. The statements that we have recorded in the gospels that Jesus makes on the cross are basically alluding to or quoting directly from Psalm 22, 23, and 24, the Hebrew hymnal, their book of worship. And while Jesus is suffering unimaginably on the cross, he is quoting from the Psalms, which means he's worshiping. So if we go back to John 20, let's look at that for a minute, starting in verse 15, and extrapolate a few more implications here. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. What happens to her when she encounters the resurrected Christ? She gets a mission. She gets a purpose. She gets peace. By the way, she becomes the very first evangelist, the very first one to share the good news of Jesus' resurrection. I find that particularly interesting that Jesus gives his first mission, his first purpose, his first message to Mary. Maybe we have something more to learn about that that we could talk about at a later date, but let's read on. Starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So check this out. The doors are locked. They're all panicked. They are afraid. And Jesus just shows up. He's like, hey, what's up? What's up? Yeah, your doors were locked. So I just, you know, I came through this wall or something. Yeah, I can apparate Harry Potter, you know? And when he said this, if we move on to verse 20, he says, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Duh. <laughs> Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So what happens is Jesus shows up to his twelve, the disciples who are hiding because they're afraid they're going to get caught and they're going to be killed. He shows up and he gives them peace and he gives them purpose because that's what the resurrected Jesus does. It's what he does. Let's keep going. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, Hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later. I love that kind of transition. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. All the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I can apparate. <clears throat> He's just there again. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God doesn't show up in this moment. Jesus doesn't show up in this moment and go, Thomas, come on, dude, get the program. He says, Thomas, I'm going to give you what you need. And Thomas takes what Jesus has to offer, and he really gets it, and he really believes. If you follow any, the church history, what goes on with all the disciples after the story we have in the Bible, church history tells us that Thomas was preaching on a street corner 
one day he's preaching about the good news of Jesus, telling people about Jesus rising from the grave. He's preaching about the resurrection. Two guys sneak up behind him with spears and they pin him to a wall. He dies preaching about this resurrected Jesus. Why did he do that? Because Jesus gave him a purpose. Jesus gave him a mission. Jesus gave him his peace that no matter what comes, persecution, trials, whatever it is, hard things, you have my peace. And there are all kinds of things that the resurrected Christ does for us. In Matthew 28, we read that he gives his followers a mission. He gives boldness to the two men walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and it goes on and on and on. This is what the resurrected Christ does for us. But we've got to be willing to go through the tomb to get there. There is no resurrection without death because there are things in us that need to die. God doesn't take us through the tombs in our own lives to make us feel bad or because he wants to be in control and you don't have any control. He does it because on the other side of those things, once you die to them, there is a resurrected Christ waiting for you saying, see how much life is over here? See how much beautiful shalom and peace and purpose is over here? There's a resurrected Christ waiting for you on the other side of the things that you need to die to in your life. You get to experience more of God than you ever thought possible. None of these disciples knew that Jesus was going to conquer death. They had no clue. It's impossible. They didn't know he could raise himself from the dead, but he did. He did. And with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. We take communion every, every week here uh, at West Seattle Christian. And if you're new with us, what that means uh, is uh, we have an open table. And what we mean by that is that if anyone is willing to celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, then you are welcome to participate. And you are invited to partake in, in this meal that represents what Jesus did at the Last Supper with his disciples. So if you haven't taken communion before, the way we do that is you get some bread and you get some wine or some juice, and uh, you can eat the bread and eat the juice, both of which represent, the bread represents Jesus's body and the juice represents his blood that was shed for us on the cross. And if you don't have those elements right now, you can pause, you can go get them. And if you don't have the wine or juice, I'm assuming you might have bread, maybe you don't, grab a cracker, um, make a substitution, it's okay with whatever you have at home. Now that you've got your elements for communion, I just wanna give you some closing thoughts before we partake. And the first one is that we all experience hard things, difficult things, tragedies, tragic moments at different levels, some little and some big. And we don't all experience them at the same time, which is really good. There are some things that affect all of us, of course, um, like this pandemic, but then there are the other little everyday things that are happening at different levels for all of us. And that's good, I say, because, uh, you know, when I'm having a bad, a bad day, maybe you're not. And when you're having a bad day, maybe I'm not. And together as the church, those of us who are doing well, at a particular moment in time, we can do that worshiping uh, for everyone else. We can sing a little louder and we can come along beside each other in an act of worship to, 
to take care of each other. Um, and, and we can sing and worship uh, more fervently because there are those of us that can't sometimes because of what they're going through. I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, uh, a pastor friend of mine here in the area called me up, actually gave me a text, and we had a text conversation. It's funny how you, you have a text and you call it a conversation, but uh, we were texting back and forth, and he said, I'm kind of on a roller coaster today because um, got this really high point where uh, father and son called me up and said they wanted to get baptized, which was a great way to start the week. And so started filling up their baptistry and they did the baptism for this father and son. But then the father told him, uh, you know, I wish I could stay here and be more involved and learn, but my work has just transferred me across the nation. And I, you know, my friend who's a pastor and I, we don't know what was going on in that guy's life or why he would really why he wanted to get baptized. He just wanted, he, he wanted to give his life to Jesus. He believed. And so that was a great high, but also a great low because he was lamenting the fact, my pastor friend was lamenting the fact that he didn't get to walk the road of discipleship with this father and son and teach them how to become more and more like Jesus. And then later in the same day, uh, another family in the church who had been part of the church for a while, uh, called him up and said, you know, we are no longer going to be part of the church. Um, and what they said to him was, uh, we're not going to attend because of a misalignment uh, in our reason for coming to church in the first place, which is kind of vague and obtuse. And, um, and frankly, unfortunately, I'm not a stranger to those types of conversations either. And so we were able to commiserate with each other a little bit. Um, my friend is being whipped all around emotionally um, by the uh, contours of his um, job, by his profession, by his calling to be a pastor. And, and, you know, I could sit there and try to explain to him why that's happening, but that doesn't ever help, does it? But in that moment, what I said for him to him was, I'm praying for you. I am in this with you. I am fighting the good fight alongside you. And then I, I ended it by saying, may it be well with your soul. May Jesus give you peace. Because that's the real stuff. That's the real deal. That is real, tangible Christianity with meat on the bones. When we come together in worship, declaring who God is and ascribing to him glory and honor and praise, in ways that remind the rest of us what it's all about when everything else seems to be falling apart in our lives. And if you're in one of those bad moments, resting in worship is a good way to work through those moments well. When bad things happen to us, what I know to be true, the first question we always ask is what? First question we always ask is why? Why is this happening? Well, here's my question. If God, the God of heaven and earth, came down from heaven to you in that moment where you're asking, why is this happening? Why have, has this happened? Let's say you're sitting there in this big mess of a tragedy. And let's say God comes down and says to you, here's why that's happened. And he just lists it off and says, here's why that's happened. Do you think that his response would satisfy you? I mean, he's God. 
I don't think his response would satisfy you. His answer would not satisfy you. It would not. This is why when someone tells someone else why they think bad things are happening to them and this is what you need to do or whatever, that's why if, if that's ever happened to you, you know what your reaction is. Your reaction is you want to haul off and punch that person in the face <laughs> because it doesn't help. It does not help. But here's the deal. When you ask the wrong question, you always get the wrong answer. Maybe a better question when those things happen in your life is, what now? What now? Like, I'm not denying that it's real. It's not made up. It's not going away. It happened, God. And I'm not gonna ask you why. I'm just gonna ask you, what now? So here's a really interesting verse for that question, what now, that uh, I think will help flesh it out for you a little bit. Romans 8, 28, which I think many people are familiar with. Paul says, all things work for good. He does not say all things are good. Why? Because all things aren't good. Some things are really, really bad, right? Uh, the verse says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Uh, a lot of times people misquote this and say things like, God won't give you more than you can handle, which, by the way, is not in the scriptures. There's nothing in the scriptures that says that. This verse says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why do they work for good? Here's why. The next verse, verse 29, because those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to his image. And what that says is, God wants you to look more and more like Jesus. So there's things that are gonna happen in our life where the why is never gonna give us a satisfactory uh, answer. But if we say what now, then there, there might be something more satisfying there. There are, these are moments in our lives where things in us need to die so that we can have a better version of Jesus in us that begins to emerge. I get to experience the resurrected Christ more and more and more. And the problem is that I have to go through the grave to experience resurrection. So if that, if that, that scripture says, if we're predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ, when we look at the person of Jesus, if Jesus worshiped in his hardest moments in his in, in the thing in the moment where he was suffering the most then we must do that too if we want to be like him the ability uh, to worship god through difficult things comes from faith that believes in what tomorrow holds so I don't know what's going on in your life right now. Some of you might be sitting in the tomb right now and it's really hard and you feel like there is six feet of earth over your head and it feels like death. Don't ever forget that Sunday is coming. It's coming. Sunday is on the way. And the resurrected Jesus will empower you and he will release things in you in ways that you never knew were possible. Hang on, don't quit. I think one of the reasons I love communion is because it always reminds me not to quit. 
it, it all boils down to this one point where we begin to endure life well. Because in communion, we are looking at the person of Jesus who endured life well and he conquered death. When we begin to do that too, we, we begin to thrive and survive and we actually get to enjoy. You pick the word. We begin to do life well. When we understand that it begins when we start looking and acting like Jesus, which means laying your life down, laying it down and not pressing your own agenda, letting the things that God wants to die in me, letting them die so that I can experience the resurrected Christ on the other side of that. This brings us to communion. It reminds us of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, which say this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him now by eating the bread. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink that juice now. Remember what Jesus did for us.